Greetings. Today is March 25th. My name is Christopher Hoster, and I'm the founder and executive director of Opus One Berks Chamber Choir. It's my pleasure to welcome you to our new podcast entitled Octavo. We hope to air this podcast at least once a month, covering pertinent topics related to the world of choral music, as well as highlighting important events taking place throughout Berks County's artistic community. Each podcast will have a main focus or theme and will feature a guest or two with knowledge and experience in that particular area. Joining me in this fun new adventure for our organization are my two co-hosts, Debbie Silas and Scott Tice. Debbie's a retired teacher who worked for Exeter School District for 36 years and is now the president of Reading Community Players. She's acted in and directed for all of our local theater organizations, some of which I've actually helped her out in. Those were fun times. Uh, and Scott has been a Berks County educator for 28 years. He's sung in various church choirs as well as intercollegiate choirs, Harrisburg Choral Society, and the Reading Choral Society. Both currently serve on the Opus One Board of Directors and are members of our ensemble. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having Thank me. You. You're welcome. Glad you could join us. <laughs> so diving right in, um, the United States has now clearly passed the one year mark since the first pandemic related shutdowns and lockdowns, um, but we're still sort of in the thick of it, in the thick of things. So for the fourth week in a row, global coronavirus cases are on the rise. Yesterday, the US reported over 79,000 new cases and almost 1,600 Americans lost their lives to the virus. And the CDC is reporting that about 13% of Americans are fully vaccinated. But in Europe, um, they're seeing a, another rise in the coronavirus cases, and the governments are now grappling with um, intense political backlash over the shutdowns um, that are looming. Um, and this comes as they're facing shortages of vaccines, um, and everything that goes with that. Uh, back in the US, we're seeing an alarming increase in anti-Asian sentiment and continuing to deal with the scourge of gun violence plaguing our communities. And these social issues uh, are in addition to the actual plague affecting our community, um, COVID-19 still disrupting our daily lives for more than a year now. And it's our ability to see our friends, our family members, to go to school, to go to the movies and to go to concerts, which is important for us. Um, and it also seems that art, specifically music, normally the mechanism for promoting tolerance and reflection and understanding and how we process these kinds of events, um, joy and loss, seems that in this last year, we've lost even that mechanism um, somewhat. Uh, and that has been taken from us. So today, uh, the focus, as you might have guessed, will be uh, about the spread, the impact of COVID-19 on the arts, the ways in which our organization and other organizations are coping um, with these challenges, and then answering the question, where do we go from here? Not speaking um, globally, um, but more what's in our own backyard, I think a lot of the organizations that are out there um, have learned to think outside the box. We certainly have uh, being in, in Opus, um, but I think now as 
vaccines become more available, I know uh, some people are letting down their guard and they're actually jumping in it too soon. And I'm just afraid that if we go into this too soon, um, we're going to be ending up right back where we where we started from. So I didn't know what communities are doing out there as far as theater productions. I know a couple high school presentations are actually taping their film or taping their productions online. Um, and I do know that they're doing drive-in um, type scenarios, but I would imagine that there would have to be some type of testing for all those involved that are in close proximity of each other unless they are performing all of this. And we're talking musical productions as far as musicals, not choral productions. Right. Um, I would imagine that you would have to have some type of testing or some people would have to be cleared uh, that they would not have to, um, because it would, difficult as we all know to sing with a mask on and even perform with a mask on. So I'm curious to see how this all unfolds um, in our in our local backyard, um, as opposed to uh, looking at what everyone's doing globally, because I really don't know. They're talking about Broadway starting back up, um, at least in the spring for for some of the for some of them, I would think it would be easier to do a play than it would be able to do a musical. But we'll see. We'll see how that all transpires. I agree, and it just seems like um, the school districts in our in Berks County, um, as well as how they're going back to school, those that are still all virtual, those that are going back hybrid, those that have been hybrid mm -hmm. since the beginning of the year, it seems like the way they are performing their school's musical are just as varied. I mean, there mm -hmm. are some that are doing live performances um, indoors. And um, then there are some that are streaming theirs totally. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see the people that we have on uh, the show today to see how they are dealing with it because every school district is handling in a different way. Um, and, and just the idea of, of, of schools reopening, um, it is, it's kind of a scary thing for me, even though you know, teachers have been given the opportunity to get the vaccination and things. It's just not, I think, like you said, Scott, that, that people may be jumping forward too mm -hmm. quickly. And I think the other thing too, is that we're, we tend to look at where, what everyone else is doing. And I think you just need to do what is most comfortable for you. And there are school districts that started off the school year with everyone 100%. And there, I think there's only two of them in this county and everyone was looking at, well, why can't we be like that? Why can't we be like that? Um, and unfortunately, everyone has to make their own decision what's best for them. And it, I'm just curious as if a musical does hold indoors and everyone comes away and there's no mass spreading of, of the virus, I think that's going to start setting a precedence of, well, if they did it, we can do it. And I think everybody needs to look at their own area. There are certain states now, I just heard on the news this morning, um, that they have now seen increased spikes. The most uh, closest one that I know of would be Connecticut. So it's just a matter of time before, because when this all started, we all started seeing the map of the world, you know, start over through China, through Asia, then it got to Europe and it's like, oh, it's never going to get to us. And then when it finally did get to us a year later, we're still here looking at when is the next strain going to come through, when's the next spike going to come through. And as an educator who is currently in the schools, um, we still have positive cases. We, we still are um, having kids being quarantined. We have teachers who are being quarantined. The fact that the travel ban has been lifted um, from state to state is kind of scary because we see what's going on currently now in Miami. 
and the, the residents of Miami are fearful of what is this going to look like once all of these people now leave and then they're all going to come back to their various states and we're going to, I'm afraid we're going to see a spike because that's all happening, you know, right down in yes. Florida. Just now, like but, that spike that we saw at the holidays at Christmas. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. and, and organizations can take every precaution they can. I know we are not going back um, after the holiday break, which would be that Easter Monday. We're told that we're going to go virtual and we're not going back until Thursday. But I have a funny feeling once we're back that Thursday and Friday, then that weekend we're going to probably see some more spikes coming up. So that's where I'm thinking until... I think everyone needs to be vaccinated and I think we need to see how the whole everyone being vaccinated is going to transpire into the arts as far as I really feel that there's going to be people that are still not going to be comfortable and there's going to be people that are going to be beating down the doors and wanting to come in to performances and unfortunately um yeah it's, it's all about uh, pressures right it's all it's, it's all about, it's pressure. about pressure we all we all want to be sitting in a theater and listening to live music, but don't get me wrong, we all want to do that, but we also have to do this in a mindful manner where we don't want to put anybody else at risk, and unfortunately, there are people that don't have that control, and they're like, well, I'm vaccinated, I'm going to be able to do this, this, and this. No, you still have to social distance, you still have to wear a mask, even though you're vaccinated, it's protecting you, but we need to protect everyone else. Right. And the implications for schools, you know, would be maybe different, something different than a, you know, a nonprofit community arts ensemble or, and even between those, you know, between community arts ensembles that are, that have flourished in the past and those that were kind of struggling before, it's going to impact, the pressure is going to impact those, even those organizations in a different manner, you know, absolutely. So we'll see how that, uh, yes, we'll see what happens. We shall see. for our discussion today, we have Carrie Schultz, the president of the Reading Musical Foundation since 2009. For almost a century, the, music, the Reading Musical Foundation has been advocating for and advancing music appreciation in Berks County. Annually, the foundation provides over $200,000 in funding to community arts programs and about $100,000 in scholarship money to local music students. Also, we have Megan Kerber. She is currently the executive director of Berks Arts, but beginning in May, she will begin serving as the associate vice president of the institutional advancement at Alvernia University. Since 1969, Berks Arts mission has been to inspire, engage, and unite our community through arts education, collaboration, and presentation. Each year, Berks Arts presents multiple community music festivals, including Berks Jazz Fest. They are also award more than $150,000 to art artists and art organizations in Berks, Lancaster, and Schuylkill counties. Welcome to you both today, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Great. Um, so thanks so much for joining us, ladies. Um, before we get begin, um, I just wanted to give us a little bit of context with our situation. So here are some numbers. There's a lot of them, and I apologize, but I think it... Uh, 
puts us into perspective where we where we currently are. So in 2017, the arts and culture sector contributed over $877 billion to the US economy. And according to the most recent data uh, compiled by collaboration between the Bureau of Economic Analysis and the National Endowment for the Arts, reports of the arts um, provided 4.5% of our gross uh, domestic product, our GDP, which is five times more than the total of agriculture. And it's more than warehousing and manufacturing combined, more than construction, utilities, tourism. It's, it's very important to our economy. Um, those employed in the creative economy, quote unquote, creative economy, are 3.6 times li more likely to be self-employed and have other part-time jobs prevalently in the, in the restaurant or hospitality industries. Um, a 2016 study of nonprofits arts organizations conducted by Americans for the Arts showed that well over half of revenue in these types of organizations came in the form of ticket sales and 30% from philanthropy and individual giving. So now the effect of COVID, comparing the third quarter of 2019 to that of 2020, we see a decline in artist employment by nearly a quarter of a million people. 27% of artists were unemployed compared to just 1.1% 1 .1 in 2019. Um, occupations in the fine, fine and performing arts account for 26.6% of all unemployment losses and 28.8% in estimated losses to monthly earnings. It's a loss of 2.3 million jobs. And also in the third quarter of 2020, tax-exempt performing arts companies reported a 54% decline in revenue. Ticket sales between July and September of 2020 were roughly a quarter of what they had been in 2019. So, I mean, the picture I'm painting is, is quite grim. Um, I just wanted to know first and foremost, um, how would you characterize where we are in Berks County as compared to those numbers, those national numbers and those national figures? And I just pose that as an open question to, to both of you. Um, Carrie, I know you have some good figures on this as well, um, but I would say here in Berks County, um, many of our or arts organizations have had a loss of 80% or more in their revenue, um, either as a performing artist or as a fine artist. Um, even our art galleries and museums um, have taken, um, you know, a significant financial hit in regards to the pandemic and not being able to have um, individuals come in and enjoy their galleries and or purchase art. Um, so many of our artists have moved to virtual platforms or more reliance on their virtual platforms. For performance organizations, again, that ticket revenue is not as financially successful um, because they're charging less for their virtual programs or providing them for free versus what they would be if it was live and in person. So some of our organizations have gone a little quiet um, while others are, they've really made the switch over to a virtual um, performance and have done well. Yeah, I mean, I would jump in and say, unfortunately, I don't think we have the, the data collection on a local level, like what you were able to pull on a national level, Chris. Um, and, you know, Megan, you might be able to speak to that a little bit more. 
and also in, in relation to what Megan had mentioned on the music side of things, um, a lot of our organizations are quite small. It's a small shop organization in which, you know, there's not a whole lot of fixed expenses. Um, so for those organizations, we have almost seen them shutter in the last year. Uh, some have been able to pull off the, the virtual performances and some have done it quite well and have really, you know, engaged a, a whole new audience in, in addition to their existing audiences. Uh, other organizations that did have fixed expenses, um, you know, it, it was a little bit of an up and down ride that this last year. Um, because in addition to earned revenue not being able, you know, to happen with, with ticket sales um, for organizations that rely on were also over the last year. And that, you know, a lot of organizations' balance sheets and, and really, you know, caused them to go out and do more, you know, one-on-one -on -one fundraising and, and trying to solicit, you know, during a time when it was quite difficult to fundraise. Um, we haven't lost any of the music organizations, fortunately. Um, it looks like they're all going to come out on the other side pretty strong, actually. So we're looking forward to seeing, you know, what the end of, of 2021 and, and the beginning of 2022 looks like. So, Megan, I guess I'll, um, I'll go ahead and ask the first question. Um, locally, what type of arts organization suffered the most uh, during this year of the pandemic in our, in our area? I would say those that are in the performing arts have suffered the most. Those that would do revenue generation through um, ticket sales and sponsorships were the ones that were the hardest hit. Um, again, they shifted um, to virtual performances, but a performance where you might pay $50 for in person online was either offered for 10 or $15 or nothing at all. So those are the ones that I believe are the hardest hit um, within our community. And that's what we're hearing from them. But I don't want to gloss over. It's not so much the organizations that have been hit hard. It's the individual, the individual artists and the artists themselves. Right. You know, because when we're not having concerts, yeah, we don't have ticket sales, but musicians aren't getting income. And that's what they depend on, you know, right. that that's their livelihood. And like Chris had mentioned in the opening, you know, a lot of the artists who do have second jobs, it is in, you know, hospitality or they're working at a restaurant and you can't rely on that either right now. Mm -hmm. um, Berks County does have its share of, you know, education slash performance professionals. So for the individuals who teach in our schools or teach at our universities, you know, a lot of them have, you know, certainly they've had a decline in their income, but they haven't had a complete washout. For our straight performers, a lot of them have had a complete just washout of income over the last 12 months. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that, yes, while the organizations are struggling, they're holding on. You know, it's, it's the individual musicians and the artists themselves that, you know, we're really trying to make sure as things bounce back that there's opportunities for them. Right. And I think, too, that's why both I think Carrie and Carrie, tell me if I'm speaking out of turn. Both you and I, with a lot of the grants that we had provided through our funding sources, kind of shifted that to the organizations and said, look, we're still providing grants, though you may have submitted for XYZ project, we still want you to pay the individual artists. They still need to uh, receive some revenue and try to keep them going um, to the best of their abilities. Because um, one of the biggest struggles, I, in my book at least, 
during this entire time is the lack of or minimal opportunities for our individual artists to seek any type of relief funding. It's really been challenging for them. Mm -hmm. So there's still a lack of evidence as to the vaccine's effectiveness on the variants. Um, and there still are questions concerning how easily the virus can still spread to others by those who are fully vaccinated. And the CDC has stated that people who have completed their full vaccination, that they can be inside with a small group unmasked. And these guidelines will most likely relax even as we for, go further in the months um, ahead. Businesses are rushing to reopen, but the, um, the NYT's report that nearly half of adults and even 40% of those fully vaccinated are still hesitant to resume, resume a normal life. And how readily do you think these audiences of ours will return to in-person events? And what do you think will draw the people back and all the precautions that need to take in order to make sure that everything is safe and when normal, when normal returns, what does that look like for the arts? I don't think normal is ever going to return. I think it's new. I, you know, every day we live through changes and mm -hmm. today is not going to be the same as tomorrow. Wow. So we're just going to have to look forward. Um, it, it's an interesting question of when do we think our audience are going to be ready? Um, we've been having this conversation throughout the entire industry and recently you had this conversation with our partners statewide and it really is coming down as it should to individual decisions. There is a great need, a lot of excitement and interest um, among many to go out there and be part of a live concert, be part of a performance, do plein air art and be around others. But there's also this sense of hesitancy of, am I gonna be safe? And what safety protocol is being put into place? So I know just you know, with our programming, we're still gonna be following COVID protocols, you know, face masking, sanitizer, hand washing, social distancing, all that's still gonna be in place unless someone tells us not to put it in place. Um, and our audiences are asking, what are you going to do? Are we going to have to wear our masks? Are we going to have our temperatures taken? Yes. And yes is the answer right now. And that's today at whatever time it is. Mm -hmm. um, but the rules of the game are constantly changing. You know, come April 4th, um, we can have 50% people in an outdoor venue. Indoor venue is still only at 25%. Again, there's just so many unknowns. Um, and again, our audience, it's based on personal decisions. Some people are willing, some people are not. And we have to be understanding of that. And I do believe that there still will be what we're calling these hybrid events of live and virtual all going on at the same time. Um, industry predict predictions is that really Though the arts are coming up and things are starting to happen, say June, July, and really this fall, you're really not going to see a full resurgence until 2022. Mm -hmm. So this may be a little bit like jumping on uh, something that we talked about before, but to your knowledge, have most, have most of the um, organizations, do they have like a task force or something or elected people that are in charge of making the decisions and following the guidelines? 
it comes down to your board of directors. Right. Okay. For most organizations. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're you have, have to follow local, county, and state compliance. And I, I think for some, and, and I'm just going to throw this in there, but I think for some organizations, especially nonprofit organizations, uh, theaters and, and musical groups and things like that, um, just the fact that they have to rent space to do a production and knowing that their house can only be 25% or maybe later on 50%, it's going to make a difference in whether or not they can do a production. Um, it, 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 it's just a matter of, of the, the money issue with renting a space and having to our business model is not centered on only selling 25% or 50% of the house. Right. right. It'd be great right. if it was, right? If we could, yeah. if everything so, else is just yes. gravy. But, yeah. but no, that, that's not our business model. And it's also not just whether or not the audience is comfortable, you know, returning. It's also the performers themselves. Mm -hmm. How many people can you safely put on a stage? And, you know, do you require that your performers be vaccinated before, you know, they're allowed to perform with you? a lot of questions you know and what megan said is, is true it's almost up to we have you know a thousand nonprofits in berks county there's probably a thousand different plans that are being put in place for all of this and how to manage it um some of the you know bigger larger organizations are developing best practices that there have been very willing to share with some smaller organizations that might not have the resources and tools that the larger organizations have on their board um, so it, that's and that's very generous of them to, to share their protocols and you know what they've been able to put in place. Carrie, I just want to sh shift um, a little bit to more of an educational topic. Um, so I just I put this study in here by the ISM, the Incorporated Society of Musicians, and they did a study in December in UK, in the UK, and they found that. Um, two thirds or 68% of primary schools and more than a third, 39% of secondary schools in the UK have reduced music teaching. And um, so singing had dropped to more than a third, 38%. And then uh, instrumental lessons have basically been cut completely out almost you know, down to 23%. So how, have similar studies been done in the US and you know, what are the long-term impacts? I'm really concerned about the long-term impacts to the future generations of musicians that we have in our society, in our community? So I'm not familiar with national studies at the moment, but I can tell you RMF did one in Berks County to see what the impact was on first and second year band and orchestra enrollment. We did not talk to the general music teachers at the elementary school levels because that's normally not a self-selected choral program. That's normally that every kid in music class sings. Um, so if music classes aren't happening, then, then kids aren't singing. Um, and, and locally, the, the numbers are, are just as scary. Uh, we've seen districts where 100% of instrument lessons have stopped for this year, which when you're doing all virtual teaching, you can imagine that that would be the case. Some districts have only been, you know, the, they've cut you know, enrollment by 4% or 8%. So some of them, they're, they're doing okay and holding their own. The average across Berks County is that our first year numbers are down by 50% and our second year numbers are down by 30%. And when you quantify that in numbers, it's 2,112 kids who do not start instrument lessons this year. Um, and that's not good because every year that we delay a student starting an instrument, the less chance we have that they actually will the following year. 
Um, when you take a fourth grader and teach them how to play Mary Had a Little Lamb on their flute, they think they're a superhero if they can get it done by the end of the year. Do that with a sixth grader. If he's not knocking out Lady Gaga on that thing within a week, he's done. You know, it, it's just the a student's ability to be, you know, more self-accepting, you know, and not have to rush through and, and, and forgive themselves for, you know, not getting to a, a self-perceived level of where they should be. Um, you know, the, the younger we can get them, the greater chance we have that they'll stick with it. So one of the things that organizations like RMF and Berks Arts Council, uh, Ringle Band, Reading Symphony, you know, all of our 18 school districts, you know, we're working right now on what can we put in place this summer to reach out to those 2,000, you know, 100 students and get, you know, if we can get like six or eight really strong weeks of intensive, you know, band or orchestra training to those kids over the summer, they'll be in a really good place to start this fall. So yes, you are 100% right. It is a problem. It's a problem here in Berks County. Um, but luckily we think we have the resources to step in and be able to offer some real assistance to those families. That's great. And just a, a quick follow-up. Um, so that all, all that is just wonderful. And um, we're so thankful to have organizations like like RMF and Berks Arts in our area that we can do those things. Um, I'm also just, I'm also a little concerned um, about virtual learning and how that applies um, and how that's being sort of thought through and what strategies um, are you seeing that are best practices? And really, I mean, nothing really in, in, takes the place of in-person learning on an instrument or, or singing. Um, so do you think that there's an impact there that even if schools are implementing these online strategies, do you think that it's still going to have an impact as to the development of those musicians as well? Absolutely. I mean, let's be honest, everyone for the last 12 months, what, whatever field you are in, whether it's music, whether it's education, whether it's med what, whatever field you're in, we've all been building airplanes in the air. Um, and our local music teachers, it's the same thing. You know, they're, they're trying to do the best they can, you know, with these virtual programs. I mean, fortunately, like the Zoom now compared to Zoom, you know, March of 2020, the audio settings are completely different, that it is a lot better to do virtual lessons um, through, you know, the, the different platforms that have been made available. Um, but you know, and it, it varies district by district of what teachers are allowed to do and what resources they have and whether or not they're actually seeing kids in, in person on their screen or whether or not they're doing a lesson, recording it, posting it, and then grading 600 responses, you know, a couple of days later. Um, but I will say, I, you know, there's a lot of conversations going on locally about the digital divide in general um, and whether or not, you know, there's, how, how we can provide more equitable access to technology and to internet, whether you have a kid in Tuffahawken who's, you know, Comcast comes a mile from his house but doesn't quite get to his house and now he has to rent, you know, a hotspot from the library for 12 months just to have internet. Or you're talking about, you know, an apartment downtown where maybe they can't afford internet, you know, or, you know, same thing up, you know, with, with other places across the community. So, I think those conversations that are being held at a much higher level is a good thing for the arts organizations because we'll naturally flow into whatever those solutions, you know, that they're able to build. Thanks, Carrie. Thank you, Megan. Um, Scott do you, or Deb, do you have any other questions? 
because I thought we could also um, allow them to allow Carrie and Megan, if you would like to highlight um, some programs that you're running or um, anything that's currently going on or anything that you're funding or excited about. I think well, we and I don't know if this is against the rules, Chris, but are we allowed to ask you questions? You definitely can, you can ask us questions. I don't know <laughs> if we'll I know you have a virtual program. So how's that going? Scott, do you want, well, I'll <laughs> allow my singers to say something about that. Scott, do you want to answer that? Sure. Um, I am a teacher by trade, so I was thrown into Zoom about a year ago, and then Chris started um, bouncing around ideas of, you know, doing this virtual choir, and we've all seen the virtual stuff online, and uh, different organizations, and a couple of Broadway casts have, have done that, so I went into it thinking, okay, well, they can do it, we can do it, and what ended up happening was, um, it's just like learning how to write with your left hand, if you're right-handed or the, uh, the opposite hand, um, it's not as easy as, as it appears. I know the, the amount of hours that have gone into it on Chris's behalf to get these recordings and so forth. He first contacted me and said, do you know anything about Google Classroom? And thank goodness that I did because I was immersed into it. I'm, I'm a hands-on teacher. I rely on technology more for like extracurricular stuff and not necessarily the teaching. I am the source of, of where the information comes from. So when we were faced with this a year ago as educators, it really put us into a position of, okay, we now have to rely on this technology to get our point across. Um, so I was able to help him sign up a little bit, you know, in, in Google Classroom. And then from there, it just kind of just snowballed and more people got on onto it and so forth. So um, I definitely feel we have learned a lot and have come a long way. And that was evident uh, with the very first piece over the rainbow that we did compared to our concert that was just aired right before the Christmas time. And then also our modern salons that we also um, give uh, to the public so that they can watch it. So um, and the audio and everything. So as we've gone along through this, we definitely have cleaned up our act a little bit. Um, it was a little rough in the beginning, but I think that's that's only acceptable when, when you look at what everyone else is doing. And the fact that Chris took this um, and ran with it and got us to the place where we are today, we're very fortunate with that leadership um, that he has been able to give us uh, because I do feel we are one of the organiza music organizations that saw this brass ring and really ran with it. Um, so I, I say good things about it um, just because it's, it's brought us to a place where I still would like to sing with my fellow singers, but if this is as close as I can get, then this is good enough. And I know that we will return back at some point, but this is better than not doing anything at all. I think we've really been helped, Carrie and Megan, that, that our organization is so close-knit. We're almost a family. I mean, it's a very close-knit organization. And we've been very, very lucky that those our family has stuck by us. Um, so we, we have seen um, a similar ticket sale um, number than we, than we do in a normal everyday year. And we've been very lucky to have the support of your, both of your organizations um, supporting us as well. Um, so it's just, uh, I, I think that's, those are the only reasons we're in the position we're in is the strength of our organization and the support from other organizations like yours. So thank you, both of you. Thank you. And honestly, 
singing virtually is a lot more difficult than doing it in person. And then thank goodness we have a technical person that could put it all together. It is hours and hours and hours of work extra from what you normally would do to go and sing with a group in person. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, and, you know, there's, you know, those old timers like myself that, I mean, when Chris said to me, would you help us out with this podcast? And I thought, what is a podcast? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know so, I, so you can understand that it was really, really a challenge for everybody involved. There's also just that immediate shock for choral singers that are only hearing themselves for the first time. So that's just a huge shock. It's not like an instrumentalist who practices all the time on their own and just hears themselves. And it's a great experience in the orchestra. You know, choral musicians come into rehearsal and they hear everybody else. And very rarely do they hear them just themselves. And I think the, the difficult part that I find um, other than you have to set everything up. So I make sure that the, you have to, you know, be in your attire and you have to, record on one device and listen to in your ear um, the recording on the other one. But then there's times when, okay, the sopranos and altos are singing and basses are sitting out for long periods of time. And it's just you and the camera and you're just staring there and you're listening and you might be, you know, moving your head back. But in a performance, normally you'd be looking at your music, getting ready to go. And, and now it's just kind of like, it's just you and the camera. And that's just something new that we're just not used to. We're always used to having people sing beside us or also hear, um, hear other parts in our ears and just to hear you alone um, definitely is a learning experience. I think that's the real silver lining with all of this over the last year. Like we've been able to replace so much of what we had always considered as being, you know, part of our everyday life. I mean, Right. I look at like how grocery shopping has changed, you know, mm -hmm. now that you can just order off your phone and have it delivered to your house. You never have to really step foot in a grocery store again unless you want to. But with music and art, like we have not been able to replace that with a virtual experience with, you know, with, with anything other than what, you know, a live experience will be. And everyone's itching to get back. So, you know, I think it's a real testament to just how authentic and genuine, you know, musical uh, musical arts and performance arts and visual arts are, you know, just to our, our human uh, needs in, in general that I think that, you know, it, it's, I always feel good that we haven't been able to replace ourselves in the last year. Um, I think that's a really good sign for all of us. Indeed. Yeah, for, I mean, for other things, you can replace it with something virtual, but for the arts, you know, there's, it's really, you can only just supplement, I think. Yeah, yeah that's right. a great way to say it. Yeah, and I've been, I've had the opportunity to work with quite a number of teachers, both in the art and music side this past year. And I am telling you, they are angels um, and true heroes because again, art and music isn't always seen as a priority in our schools. Their, their positions are being moved into other subjects and then doing music and art and trying to do that virtually. You know, how do you teach pottery virtually when the kids need to be there they need to be playing with the clay or you know how do you teach someone for the first time I'm scared saying the piano or guitar when you can't be there with that student helping them with their hand positions um, so truly in my book you know our music teachers are true heroes they are trying their best to uh, you know provide these services to our kids and to provide them a well-rounded educational experience and 
they go full virtual, they go hybrid, they go full in back to hybrid. So their class structure, just like all of our teachers are constantly changing and I give them a lot of credit because it's not an easy task. And many of them are artists and musicians personally. Um, so they're still trying on that side as well. And um, it really can, you know, I think we just all need to be thankful for those that are in this field and are working hard to try to keep art and music alive and vibrant and out there in our community. You know, our message to our, all of our arts organizations and artists that we work with is stay present. Don't lose your audience, just stay present. However, which way you can, is it via mail, social media, websites, virtual performances, doing performances out on the street. Um, we've seen a lot of porch parties and poetry readings and mini theater performances. I have a group that basically took a float bed, attached it to a truck and was driving around town doing performances um, in different neighborhoods just to be out there and being present within our community. And it's so critical now more than ever. And if our communities don't think the arts are really important that they're more fluff, I would beg to differ because everything we do is impacted by arts and music. Um, Absolutely. We live in the cars we drive to the clothing we wear, to the decor, it's all, everything we do is touched by an artist. Mm. So it needs to be given a little bit more respect. <laughs> right. It does, it does. Well, at this point, Karen, Again, uh, we just want to thank you so, so much for joining us on our very first episode of Opus One's new podcast, Octavo. Uh, we truly appreciate your insight in this discussion and the arts organizations such as your own, um, and we're just going to face more challenging times ahead together. So thank you again, and we hope that you will join us again sometime in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks, being present. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Now we turn to Music in the News, a segment in which we will highlight music events, other local art organizations, and address particularly interesting topics that relate to the arts. It's all you, Deb. So for this month's Music in the News, we're going to start by uh, talking about the Yoakum Institute are doing a performance this weekend called Dragons Love Tacos. Uh, it is Friday, March 26th at six o'clock. March 27th at two and six, and they're doing either a live performance or they are streaming. So you can go onto the Yoakum Institute website to find out more information. On that website also is signups for this summer's Broadway Junior Camp of Willy Wonker Jr. So for all your young people, I think it's ages like seven to 14, um, check that out for your summer. Um, many of our theater companies are doing uh, streaming with their performances um, and also there are a few that are trying to start getting things back in more normal and um, so and bands in the area are starting to be performing at some of our uh, local 
restaurants and establishments. Um, Friday, March 26th, there will be a virtual concert from the Lancaster Symphony Orchestra, which is free and it will be um, focusing on woodwind ensembles. Um, Reading Civic Theater will be holding auditions for their summer performance of Godspell. So you can check out their website, Reading Civic Theater for information about that. Um, so not much is happening live right now, but hopefully things will open up a little bit as our summer approaches. So that's all for the music and the news. So see you later. At the conclusion of each episode of Octavo, we'd like to recognize someone in the local community who's fulfilling Opus One's creed. Together, we can make Reading sing. Who is making Reading sing? Well, today we have Mrs. Sarah McGrory. She currently is serving as the choral director at Conrad Weiser High School in Robazonia. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for thank you for coming. Um, please tell us a little bit about your like your musical background, uh, your program at Carmen Weiser and um, other things. So I graduated from Susquehanna University with a degree in music mm. education and an organ concentrate. Um, and I right away was hired at Conrad Weiser as the general choral and band director at Conrad Weiser West Elementary. Um, while I was there, I completed my master's degree at Messiah College in choral conducting. And then uh, two years ago, I was switched up to the high school, so now I teach um, high school choir, um, a music theory course, a music through the guitar, which is actually turning into guitar and keyboard next year, um, and a music technology course. So that's a little bit about me. So one of the things that we would like to um, just ask educators in general, but especially the music educators, is how has this pandemic affected the musical and the artistic development of students that you teach of, of the children. Um, what can be um, what can be done? What is being done to minimize any kind of long term detrimental impact on them? Yeah, uh, pandemic has been hard. Like it's really hard on all of us, on the kids, on the adults, and I think more than anything, we're missing the joyful togetherness uh, that we've been accustomed to. Uh, getting through music our entire lives. Um, and more and more, the students and I are realizing how much music and arts are part of that togetherness. Um, we haven't sung together as an entire choir since March 13th. We've either been virtual or half of us are in uh, the building, but we haven't all been together in any way. And the social and emotional impact that that is having on the kids is is terrifying, honestly. And adding in the musical impact, there's a lot that we're going to have to recover from when we get back into the classroom full time. Um, and there's nothing that can really replace that feeling of singing together. So no matter what we do as teachers right now, nothing that I can do while they are at home 
or while we are only part of a choir, nothing fulfills that togetherness, that musicality, that just innate feeling that you get making music with one another. So that has been really difficult. And I've got kids that are frustrated. They're so frustrated. They want that together. They want to sing, they want to make music, but they don't want to do it in the way that we are. And I think that the long-term impact of that is pulling kids back in because we've got kids dropping left and right in our elementary program. Our elementary program hasn't even started this year. Middle school, our numbers are substantially down. And so one of the things that we are doing is trying to pull kids back in and remind them what singing is like, what choir and band are like, not in a pandemic and what it's going to be like when we can come back together. Um, and the more that we can recruit kids and remind them of that, then the sooner we can hopefully get back to making music together and getting that joy that we get out of music. Sarah, just a follow up to that. Um, I'm interested in, in specifically like the kids that are, you would, or maybe they still are going into the music field into college and how they're coping with that situation. Because it has to be different from someone who just enjoys playing the trumpet, but someone who's going into music education or something like that, that field, I'm sure it's affecting them even more, so. Absolutely. And even my kids that are going into music are struggling because things, what are the things that those kids look forward to? They look forward to auditioning for counties and districts and going to those festivals where everybody else is there for that reason and making higher level music. And they don't even get that. Counties didn't happen this year. Districts was an audition, but there was no event that happened. You could audition for states and they're each performing one virtual song. So even a lot of my top level kids didn't want to go through the process of doing those auditions because what's the point? It's just another online thing. So again, pulling those kids and trying to continually motivate them and go, guys, if this is what you want to do, we need to stick at this. We need to keep working at this, but that's been difficult as well. And so encouraging kids to do private voice lessons um, and encouraging just maintaining as much normal as we possibly can in what is the most abnormal of situations has been painful. Have you seen a drop off in, in students who want to pursue music as a career? Um, I can't necessarily speak to that just because I haven't been in the high school long enough. Okay. Um, I have three kids this year that I know of that are for sure going into music. Okay. Um, but it's really hard to say because just the motivation level in general is is really low and the morale is really low, which is, it's heartbreaking. You know, people talk a lot all about the, uh, the sports and everything and how these kids that are, you know, needing to have these experiences their senior year in sports uh, to get into college, but it's just as bad, if not worse, for those musical kids. Because now, I mean, this is not my question, but how is your high school doing? Are they doing a high school musical? So they just announced uh, this past week, they're not actually doing a musical. They're doing, it's basically a cabaret, but they're trying to piecemeal it together to tell a story. Um, but it's, it's so 
it's so shortened. It's so truncated and it's not a full musical experience. Uh, So they're basically having a month or so to put this together. And again, we've only got 20 kids that went out for it because the the motivation just isn't there. And I don't know what we can do to kind of bring the kids back and be like, no, you got to do this. This is another thing that you can participate in that can be semi-normal, but they're like, we don't want to just stand and sing another concert. Yeah, I think we're also dealing with a bit of fatigue too when it comes to this online information. Absolutely, being absolutely. Left and right, so I know the motivation is it must be it must be frustrating. <laughs> and I think they're they're sick of the monotony as well. I mean, they're going through. I feel like so much of what we're doing right now is going through the motions, um, and it's not the meaningful education that they're usually getting. They don't have, and I think a lot of this stems from social interaction. They are so isolated this year. Um, they don't necessarily have classes with all of their friends because like in our district, your friends might be on the opposite end of the alphabet. And so you might never get to see those friends that you are usually in classes with that you've been in classes with for 11 years of your life. And now you never get to see them your senior year. Like the mental health of these kids is it's not, it's not good. It's not good. Can you share with the listeners of how your school district, like how they started out the beginning of the year, what your year was like, and then how it's transferred throughout this year? Absolutely. So we started out the school year completely virtual. So we had quite a few weeks where the kids were completely at home and we were doing everything online. And just about the time that we thought we had kind of figured that out, we switched to a hybrid model. Uh, where I have half of the alphabet comes in on Mondays and Thursdays. The other half comes in on Tuesdays and Fridays. And on Wednesdays, we are all completely virtual. And that has maintained this whole time until April 19th, we are coming back fully in person. So we'll have about a month and a half of complete in-person instruction before the end of the school year. How do you feel the kids did with the adapting to those changes? I feel like... It, it took a while to adjust each time it takes their huge changes, their schedule changes, their technology changes, their, their changes to every part of their daily being. And then as soon as we think we have it figured out, as soon as we know that the kids know what they're doing, that's when another major change is happening. So there hasn't been any consistency all year for them. And the kids have mentioned that plenty of times, like, Oh, great. Now on the 19th, we have another schedule change. Here we go. Like they know that this is abnormal. They th- they know that this isn't right. And they're struggling to figure out how to cope with it. And we as teachers and, and administrators and parents are all struggling to help them cope as well. I feel like it's a lose-lose situation. I don't mean to sound like a Debbie Downer this whole time. I'm really sorry. No, no. It, it, I mean, I don't think, I mean, you know, people don't realize what, what teachers are doing. And, and you know, Scott and, and, you know, both of you are teachers and it is mind boggling what, what you're dealing with um, to try to make these kids as successful as possible. And, and it, it's, I don't think people realize. I feel like the large portion of my day right now is spent being like switching between a cheerleader and a, a counselor. Like, come on guys, you can do it. Like we can do this. I had rehearsal with my my select group last night, my Coraliers. So I've got 16 kids. They auditioned to get into this group. We've been meeting twice a week. We cut it down to once a week during this musical time. 
and they're good kids. They're my motivated kids. They're my strongest singers. And last night we sang all of the right notes and we sang all of the right rhythms, but like their energy just wasn't there. And I looked at them and I said, guys, like we're not making music right now. We're singing, we're singing the right notes. Like it sounds like the song, but we're not making music. And they're like, we're just so tired. We're so tired. I'm like, me too. But here we go. Like, this is our time. This is the one thing that is the one thing that we all have that is normal, quote unquote, normal, right? That's our entire group. That's the only time that I have an entire group singing. And even then my top kids are struggling. They're struggling. But hopefully by next year, we'll be closer to normal. I, whatever normal is like it be yeah, yeah and that, that was actually another question i had was we had so we had carrie and megan talking about the possible return to normal or the sort of the transformation into a new normal do you think that um do you have an idea of either or do you think that we're going to sort of return back to and revert to what life was like before covid or do you think that this has if in, impacted us in such a way that we're going to transform um, the way we do things going forward. I don't know that we'll ever be back to what our our sense of normal had been. Um, I don't know that we can ever get back to exactly that. I think that we have all become hyper aware of germs and aerosols and how close we actually are to everybody. And I think that that hypersensitivity is going to to just change us all. I think it has changed us all as human beings. Um, I hope, I hope, hope, hope that we can get back to a place where we're comfortable being around people again. I hope that we can get back to the point where I don't have to stay six feet away from all of my students. I hope that I can get back to the place where kids are comfortable coming and sitting in my office. Like my office is usually a place where kids are coming in and we have heart to heart chats or they are crying and, and all they need is a piece of candy. Like I am missing that interaction with my kids and those relationships with my kids that I'm just not able to have because I have to stay so far away from them. I didn't realize how much physical touch was involved in a school day, teaching a guitar, like teaching a kid how to play guitar and not being able to touch their hands and physically place them on, on an instrument. I can't even imagine trying to teach like beginner instrumentalists right now. I can't imagine. How do you teach a kid an embouchure if you can't physically touch their face or put a clarinet in their mouth the way that it needs to be? Like, it's just, it has really, it's changed our mindsets. It's changed our fear. It, uh, I don't know. Just to piggyback on what Chris said, in the educational field, whenever you get a new curriculum or any, it takes a while. So this pandemic happens now. So those juniors and seniors, just got the tip of the iceberg and now they're gone. We won't see the true effect, I believe, of this pandemic until those primary kids get into the intermediate age and into the high school. And then I think you'll truly see what this pandemic actually, the long lasting effects that it has had on our children. Absolutely. And especially in the music world, like I'm looking at our numbers and I'm looking at our our participation and the the skills that the kids are not learning right now because they can't they can't we can't sing together so you're not learning about the choral singing so as much as we have adapted and we've upped our sight reading and we've upped our musicianship and we've upped our listening skills like those are the things that we can work on asynchronously when the kids are not physically in front of us but the skills that they are losing those ear training and blending and 
all of those things that they're not practicing, those are practiced skills. And so we're losing a lot of that and we're losing participation. So now we're gonna have lower numbers. We're gonna have fewer kids with the skills that they had prior. So it's gonna take so long to rebuild this, this program, any program and all of those skills that had been strong on March 13th of last year. And then um, just thinking outside of the box, we've all had to think outside the box this year. You said you're coming back full time in, in, in April, correct? Yeah, on the 19th. So I'm sure as a teacher brain starts to think, what all is that going to look like? What have you, what do you have in place that you're like, this is something that I normally wouldn't do, but I'm going to go ahead and try it. And it's considered like an out of the box type of thing. Yeah. So precautions that we've put in place, we, um, I start my rehearsals in the auditorium. I can easily be six feet spread apart for everybody in the auditorium. We have also, um, set up our marching band practice field so that we will be able to rehearse outside because the idea of singing for 82 minutes in the same space is is not really an option right now um so we'll be doing outdoor rehearsals we are also planning on doing our concert outdoors we have booked the stadium and we are combining with the middle school um to do a combined concert so that hopefully we can pull some of those middle school kids, they can see what the high school ensembles sound like, and hopefully we can pull them in and use that as, as a way to just remind them, hey, look, music still happens in the high school. You have to put it on your schedule, but music still happens in the high school. Um, in the winter, we did a virtual concert. We had everybody record themselves. I spliced it all together. We did the video, we did the audio. It came together nicely, and the kids hated every single second of it. They absolutely despised singing alone and recording themselves. I had many kids that just didn't do it because they just were not comfortable with that solo singing. You're so exposed. You're so vulnerable. Um, and again, that's not what they signed up for. They didn't sign up for singing solo 101. They, they signed up for chorus. Um, and so they, they begged and pleaded. They said, please, 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 please mm -hmm. do not make us record ourselves again. And right. I said, guys, the issue is if we have an outbreak or if it's raining or, and the list of ors and issues runs a mile long. And they said, yeah, but that's what we want to try to do. And so I'm going to listen to the kids at that point. And if making live music, no matter the cost is what they want, then I can respect that. I totally get it. Sure. It's not going to be a perfect concert, but if, if it's going to be the most musically fulfilling thing that we can do, and if it's going to be something that they will work towards, then that's what we're going to do. Absolutely. So. Okay. Well, Sarah, we just want to, we're just so appreciative that you took time out today to um, come in and just give us a little insight as far as what um, you and other music educators are going to be going through um, as we try to get back to, to what we call our new normal. So um, thank you again for joining us. We truly appreciate it. Thanks for having me guys. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Debbie Silas and Scott Tice, and our special guests, Carrie Schultz, Megan Kerber, and Sarah McGrory. Here ends our first episode of our new podcast, Opus One Octavo. Uh, if you've enjoyed our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe and uh, join us next time for another wonderful discussion. For more information about Opus One, visit our website, www.opus1chamberchoir.com. <laughs>